Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, and welcome to the Ideas Roadshow podcast. I'm Howard Burton, your host and creator of Ideas Roadshow, and I'm delighted to be partnering with the New Books Network to offer you our uniquely eclectic blend of long-format conversations with a wide array of experts across many different subjects. The following discussion is a reformatted podcast version of one of Ideas Roadshow's first 100 film conversations that's also available in video and print formats. Visit ideasroadshow.com for more details. Richard Feynman famously said that just because you know the name of something doesn't actually mean that you know anything about it. I think of that often when it comes to medical matters, where a quick glance at history reveals that all too often what we call a condition or a disease predisposes us to look at it in a way we later realize might be, if not actually incorrect, at least deeply misleading. One person who seems particularly sensitive to this danger is eminent UCL psychologist and autism specialist Uta Frith, who has personally witnessed the considerable evolution that the term autism has undergone over the years, despite the fact that, at a fundamental level, a detailed understanding of what, in fact, autism is remains deeply mysterious. Today it is my great good pleasure to be sitting opposite Uta Frith, Professor of Cognitive Development at University College London and a world expert on autism, which is the topic of today's show, Autism the Enigma. Welcome, Uta. Well, thank you very much, Howard. I'm very uh, pleased to that somebody takes that much interest <laughs> uh, in, in, in autism. I think it is also everybody is talking about it. Um, there is still um, usually some kind of political agenda, and I think the actual science is perhaps less well known. Right. It is much less well known, um, and I think that's an essential aspect of science, and the whole, yeah. the whole notion that, in, in, again, correct me if I'm starting to pontificate, because I have a tendency to do that, but, <laughs> um, but the whole idea that, that in science it's perfectly okay to say, I don't know, I don't understand, right. this is a mystery, right. we're trying to solve right. this, whereas there is some sense in the popular consciousness, be it politically oriented or otherwise, that, uh, that, oh no, you can never admit that you don't know something, yeah, you yeah. have to no, be able to in, dictate. In, in research, it is, it is very, very different. In autism research, I mean, I, I can talk about my own experience, which really goes back about nearly 50 years, right. which, is, which is really quite a long time. And uh, very often I did ask myself, well, I've been at this problem, I've been trying to, to find reasons why we find this, the, the, all these phenomena in autism, and I still don't know. Even now, I still don't know. Right. Even now, when I see a new um, person with autism, I find something surprising. And that, that's just continued all the way. Of course, this is also the thing that has made me passionate and absolutely uh, curious and right. passionate about really um, trying to, 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 to find out a little bit more about it. Right. So if, if I hadn't known in, in the late 60s when I started to be interested in the topic that even after all this time it was, it was still such a mystery as it was then or, or enigma as we sometimes call it, I don't know, I would not have believed this. I would have thought surely um, we will find, we will find, first of all we find the causes in biology, in the brain right. and in the genes and we will also find some kind of 
treatment, best possible way forward, and we will have a good theory about the mind in autism, how it works. Um, but it is not as simple as that, because in some sense, when you start talking about phenomena in autism, special mysteries there, you're really talking about mysteries of, of, of the human mind. Mm -hmm. And that is such a big topic that 50 years is absolutely nothing. Right. When you think about how long it took us to understand the cosmos, and even that is, is an ongoing project. Mm -hmm. um, even balls falling. I mean, even even even, even, even basic mechanics. It basic took a very long time to do. Problems, it. yes. And as far as our study of the mind is concerned, we've only just started. We've only just begun. I think many people don't quite appreciate how how recent, for example, um, psychiatry is. Right. Medicine is quite recent. Scientifically based sure. medicine is right, quite right, recent. Right, we right. haven't had that for right. more than about 400 years or so. But um, uh, psychiatry to treat disorders of the mind, of the brain, is is even, you know, is, is barely 100 years old. Indeed. And that's also one of the, one of the um, explanations of why uh, we didn't know about autism before. You know, people often find that very strange. They say, well, suddenly we hear all about autism. It didn't used to be uh, around, you know, but the, the answer is quite simply that people had no way of talking about um, these particular individuals, these particular uh, children, in, uh, of course, that um, the parents knew about. Right. And they had to deal with this forever, I think. Um, and it isn't just a new phenomenon, it's just newly addressed and newly labelled. But that's interesting because um, when I started learning about, about this, which was uh, a matter of weeks ago rather than a matter of decades ago, uh, and my knowledge is, is, is infinitesimal, of course, but when, when I started digging into, well, what is this autism thing all about? Um, my reaction was very much as you had described. Here I am, uh, uh, unfortunately a man teetering dangerously close to middle age, if not beyond, uh, whatever that means. And, and I don't pretend to know anything about these things. And all of a sudden I look back and I think, everybody's talking about this autism. There's autism, there's Asperger's syndrome, there's this, there's that. Every kid has something, is being diagnosed. Yeah. That, that's in the popular conscious, that's the way it seems. Oh, is it autism? Is it ADD? Yeah. Is it this? Is it that? And, and if you don't know anything about these things, you're hearing these words being thrown around all over the place. And there's the sense that you, uh, of, of, of almost scaremongering of people on the other right. side saying there's this epidemic going on. Yeah. There's this autism suddenly epidemic. Suddenly it's there and it's, it's, it's increasing. And suddenly I know people who have an autistic child. Could it happen to me? Could right. it happen to my family? Exactly. Um, well, first of all, um, I think in the past there was a lot of suppression of um, mental illness in general. It was very, very heavily stigmatized. And it was a very big problem of, of, of dealing with a child born in a, in a family entirely healthy and so on. Uh, a child who had real problems with language, with learning, with right. social interaction. People didn't know what to do, what, what to think about that. And in fact, there were, in pre-scientific days, um, stories of possession, stories of the changeling child, for sure. example, people could not easily cope with this kind of problem. And in uh, at the time when I, I started my research, my PhD in, in the 1960s, there were very big 
um, institutions for mentally handicapped children, mm. mentally handicapped adults, and they were put out of sight, out of mind. So around the periphery of London, there were some of these big, huge institutions, these asylums, right. where, you know, uh, children... Dumped, yes. Well, they weren't dumped. Sorry, they were... Sorry, they were um, looked after in, in a way that that was considered um, possible um, and, and possibly appropriate, but a, a very large proportion, I believe, at some, I believe at some were, were autistic, right. even though when we first started out, we thought it was just a particular subgroup, a particular possibly tiny group out of this huge uh, bulk of what was called mental retardation, that we could have some angle on, that we could have some understanding of what in the brain went wrong. So a, a large proportion, of course, of this mentally retarded population had definite brain pathology right. that you could see under the microscope after they died. You know, there were people doing the pathology. But there are also cases, and autism is a particular uh, case, where you couldn't see anything with the naked eye. Brain seemed perfectly fine. Hmm. And so um, there was still this idea that perhaps, um, we call it dualism, that there is the body and the brain, but there's also the mind. Right. And maybe you could have mental disorders that have nothing to do with your body and your brain. Um, mental disorders that maybe had mental causes, psychological causes. And... Um, so it was nothing to do with some kind of uh, biological uh, involvement, just neurological involvement, just mind stuff. And of course, the, this, the, the main theory that was quite dominant for, for a while and is still fighting to be heard <laughs> is this idea that it's all to do with a trauma that a child experiences perhaps in not being um, bonded with the mother properly, right. possibly rejected by the mother. Now, this the idea it wasn't that this was a necessarily conscious act on the mother's part, but it was some kind of, you know, deep psychoanalytic process that made the mother reject the child. And the idea that psychoanalysts had was that they knew how to cure autism um, by maybe treating the mother also treating the child they thought there was absolutely nothing wrong with that person neurologically that they could speaking be, it was neurologically because speaking, of experiences absolutely. or dispositions or something yeah like that. that was real plain dualism mm -hmm. which we now completely reject because right. we think there is a connection between the mind and the brain although not not all of us i mean when i say us uh there is of course as, as, as yes. you're all too well aware there there has been uh, a recent film uh that came out by sophie robert in, in france documenting the fact that many uh, many people in France still treat autism according to the way you've described uh, as some sort of uh, from from a uh, psychoanalytical perspective as opposed, yes. As opposed yes. to yes unfortunately to unfortunately this is still going on even so there is absolutely no scientific evidence for it and and that I think is quite scandalous mm. I mean it is it is really quackery there is just no other word for it there are people who really believe and parents also who really believe that you know, maybe you could just change by uh, some kind of power of, of, of the talking cure um, to, to have some kind of uh, 
suddenly normal person emerging there, maybe yeah. not suddenly, but at least right. gradually, right. and rejecting the idea that there is um, an, a neurological basis that gives certain limitations on what you can do and not do and what you should accept right. as as given and what you have to work with rather than somehow wishing to change the autistic person from autistic into uh, into something waving, else. Waving some magic wand. Let, let, let me, uh, l let's get back to, to the beginning of, of my level of confusion. So here I am thinking, I've heard all of a sudden about autism. I don't really know what it is. Right. Uh, it becomes very prevalent in the social consciousness. According to what you've been saying and according to what, uh, uh, what you've written and, and what, uh, what's, what's out there, it seems to me that there are two different reasons why it's more prevalent. So correct me if I'm wrong. So here's my synopsis of, of what I've learned. So, okay, so here good. I am hoping to be okay. a good student. Tell me if I'm <laughs> right or if I'm wrong. Um, so there has been a relabeling. Yes. Uh, to the extent that uh, many people in the past who were labeled as mentally retarded or, or, or something else are now regarded as being autistic. Okay. Um, and furthermore, there is a sense um, that uh, there are uh, more s subtle and less obvious aspects of what, uh, what constitutes autism that in the past wouldn't have been diagnosed or right. wouldn't have been noticed. You've got that absolutely right. I get an A for that. You got an A plus <laughs> for that because this is exactly what happened. There has been an, a widening of what can be called autism autism into a whole spectrum as it's called or sometimes people say it's actually autisms in plural right. so absolutely right those people who were previously just considered mentally uh, handicapped intellectually disabled many of them can now be given that label autism on the on the grounds of some different yeah. uh, specific uh, clinical criteria but at the same time we go to the opposite extreme and we look at people who are um, highly intelligent, um, uh, often very eccentric, mm -hmm. who we have known about in novels and, and, and in from family histories forever. Right. And suddenly these people are also called autistic because there are certain features in their behavior. For example, a, a very obsessive interest in a particular topic. Um, a, a, a very narrow and, and rigid style of life and a, a social awkwardness and a lack of interest in, in social communication that all seem to say, well, isn't that just a version of what can be described as the essence of autism that applies to people in this whole spectrum. Now, having made it so wide, of course, you can see that more and more cases will be labeled like that. Yes. So this is the steep increase that we suddenly get um, just because people are now given this label who would never have been given the label before. And once this happened, this was almost like, a, like an avalanche because suddenly people felt, yes, um, here, uh, psychiatrists, for example, so yes, we have uh, our patients that we never quite were able to classify. They fit into that category. Parents who said, well, my son is, is very strange. He just doesn't have friends and, and all he's interested in is, is uh, trains. I think there is something 
you know, that we could actually give a label to and maybe he will get special consideration and special help. So there's been a, a lot of reason for um, pushing for more um, a, a diagnosis to be given. And that's why we have a, a, a increasing number of cases. Of course, there is a, a limit, there is a ceiling that will be reached but beyond I, I, which there won't be any more and more cases. But I want to ask you about that because if, again, if I'm sitting back and I know nothing about this, I say, well, I understand the definitions are, have evolved, more cases are, are being taken into consideration, there's a broader understanding of this, but where is the limit to this? I mean, it, yeah. could, I just, could I just evolve this uh, indefinitely so that everybody yes. in the world can be considered yes. to be a yes. little bit or, or a lot autistic? Yes. If we're to be proper scientists, we have to have yeah. some reasonably a, clear definition and cut off of what it is. So when I ask you, as, as an expert in autism research, what, what is it? What mm. is autism? You will respond in what way? Um, it, it, is, it is not an easy question. Sure. Well, I'm not, I'm not paid um, to ask easy questions. Um, it, you know, you might say, hey, after all this time, you should come up with this definition and you should really know what it is. But people are still arguing about it. People right. are changing it. But I will give you what I think many people will, will agree with the kind of core um, of what autism is, a kind of essence right. of autism. And I believe it is uh, a neurologically caused entity. I believe there is a ultimately genetic uh, plus environmental causes well before birth. We're not talking about environmental causes due to a maternal rejection or anything like that. Right. But okay, this entity I would describe as um, lacking the otherwise innate ability, and that's quite a big claim, Indeed. which is still controversial, the innate ability to um, attribute an inner life to other people and to oneself, mental states, feelings, ideas, knowledge, and so on. Now, this innate ability is not something necessarily uniquely human. There is something even, as has been observed in uh, a variety of other species, in particular the uh, very clever um, uh, crow family. These birds seem to be able to take into account whether another bird observes them while they are hiding some food. And they will, uh, after a while, when the other bird has left the field, go and put that food somewhere else so that it can't be stolen. <laughs> so this is what I mean by that innate <laughs> ability to right. attribute, in this case, knowledge, mm -hmm. having seen what's happening, to another right. agent right. of your own species. And that's what even uh, you know, young human infants can do too. And I believe that autistic infants are not born with this ability. And therefore, it, it puts development onto quite a different track. So the, the way, for example, we normally learn language is by um, also attributing uh, knowledge to another person or having some joint interest and in understanding this all totally unconsciously. Now, um, this ability has big, big repercussions because it drives all our interest in communicating our inner thoughts because we, we know we, we have different thoughts in, right. in our heads. Right. I can't assume that you, ha you think the same as I do. Um, you, you have a different uh, field of view. You see these dolls from the back. 
I see them from the front. Yeah. And I can, I can make these uh, allowances for your point of view, my point of view, without thinking about it. This is just sort of built in, given right. free this and nothing. Yeah, right. Yes. Um, so... I think this is really um, not innate and free for nothing in in the autistic brain, um, but that's not all. That's that's the the, the, the uh, underlying um, theory, the idea that that can explain their particular, very very specific inability to communicate and their special style of social interaction, because it's not true that people with autism are socially asocial, antisocial, socially disinterested, not socially aware. All of this is just not true. There are some very, very specific things that they find very difficult in social interactions, which turn out to be terribly important, so important that they are done at this unconscious level that you know evolution has not left this to chance, that we have to learn about it by... Uh, you know, taking years, maybe some kind of uh, trial and error learning. Right. No, we can do it right away, and and that is a that is a, a, a it is very subtle, but it's also very pervasive. It's a kind of thing that makes us feel that other agents have um, motives to do certain things, like intentions and beliefs and, and, beliefs and, and right. desires, just like we have beliefs and desires. Yeah. Now, what's interesting about humans and that's perhaps unique to humans that they can reflect on this ability they can think about it so just like I'm talking about it now um, it seems very um, yeah, very easily persuaded that the way we do this attributing of mental states to each other is done in a conscious perfectly rational way we can we can think about it, for example, that your point of view is different from my point of view. I can see this. I can imagine what your view is and my view is all in a very conscious way. Right. We can do this, but it's not the same thing, it turns out, as this intuitive, spontaneous, automatic, innate ability to attribute mental states. Mm. And very interestingly, this conscious way of talking about mental states is um, open to be learned slowly and effortfully to people with autism. So there is, so there, there is, a, there are, there are opportunities for development and learning. And you had mentioned a developmental disorder, and I want to get back to some of these points that you had mentioned. But I think I should explain a little bit more because sure. it's a bit too mysterious. This is relatively new development of the ideas to make a distinction between the implicit unconscious way of um, and the methodological conscious way of being and able a to conscious do, to way. And the important thing to say is that the conscious way is possible to acquire even if you are autistic even if you don't have that intuitive sense. And, and I guess, uh, so if I want to explore, uh, let's explore it now. <laughs> yeah, okay. <laughs> um, is it, uh, there are two questions I have. One is, can, it, uh, can someone with autism who is using the second approach, because they don't have the innate hardware, uh, yeah. to, uh, as it were, to be able to, to, to uh, to appreciate this, but they can they can consciously construct they can consciously construct. Of course, they have to have a certain degree, you could say, of 
cognitive ability sure. of intellectual ability. So this is where your the ones on the on the more intelligent, much, much more intelligent clever than us, like, uh, end will shine. They sure. will be the people who use all their intelligence, their resources of making inferences, of of understanding uh, what what goes on in the situations. For example, as perspective taking, they will learn it, and they will be absolutely perfect at it. Absolutely and perfect, because that was my question. Will they, will they be able, even though it's learned behavior, will they be able to do it in a way uh, where the, the untrained individual, somebody who doesn't know, wouldn't yeah, know that they yeah, would have yeah. autism? Would they yeah. be absolutely perfect, or would they be able to simulate it I to a tell high you, they, degree? They, they, would, they, would be, they would be able to be perfect if it was done in writing. If oh. you did it by email, for example. If you could let them think about it. If you had a conversation, it would be possible if, if you gave them time to, to think through this. And of course, many of the situations have already been rehearsed, like the tests. They can do those tests perfectly, very often because they've studied them, hmm. they've read about them. So in a sense, they've lost their potential to be sensitive in, in a diagnostic sense. Right. But it's also terribly uh, positive and encouraging that this, is, this can be learned. But I insist that it's not the same thing. Right. So when we also do this consciously, which we can do, think about it, give an answer that's reflective, that takes a little bit of time, this is maybe quite separate and quite divorced from our sort of intuitive way of attributing mental states, um, which we probably never give up entirely. So we use, I think, both these levels at the same time. But if you're autistic, I think you just have that very effortful conscious level that engages your intellectual abilities quite a lot while if you had only that intuitive level you might well be able to do other think other things at the same time and this would just go on regardless so it's a it's an, a much um, less effortful way of doing things it, it stands us in quite good sure, state. Sure. It can sometimes also, it's like, like all innate things, can sometimes be for the bad, sometimes right. be for the good. Right. And these conscious things can sometimes be for the bad, sometimes for the good. Because you could also um, remember, for example, Machiavelli, who wrote this famous book, giving advice to the prince of mm -hmm. how to uh, best get ahead in, an, in a political climate, how to be a good ruler, mm -hmm. and how to see through other people, that right. kind of and thing. And how to manipulate situations. And that's so. how we use the word Machiavellianism, we manipulate others. Mm -hmm. uh, advertising people do that all very, very consciously. They know what works. Right. So this is all to do with this conscious part of attributing mental states. And uh, we, we, we do use it, and, and we sometimes have quite a... Um, uh, a struggle, I think, to sort of turn off, for example, the power of advertising. Yeah, say yourself, um, I have to resist this because this is just pure manipulation. They're getting into my head. Yeah, yeah. But if you can do it on this totally intuitive level, right. yeah, it's very difficult to resist anything. Then you're caught. Then you're really into this. So the real danger is that one person is conscious manipulating, and the other person is purely intuitive and is completely. Um, unaware of what happens. This, uh, this idea uh, that you've called theory of mind and mentalizing, yes. this idea of being able to understand other people's perspectives, yeah. their desires, their intentions, yeah. and so forth, um, that 
autistic people do not have, although some of them, well, as you I, well, say... I, I believe it's... I mean, I, I want to say it's still a theory. So that you believe. So that everything I, believe, I say should be prefaced with that you believe. Not everybody believes this, but there seems to be... a. a, a it seems to be more accepted than not okay. after after about you know 30 years of pretty severe testing trying to demolish right. this so that's where i wanted to get to so i'm summarizing to the the claim and it is a claim it, it is, is a not, claim it's not a statement of fact yes. from on high but it yes. is a claim so the claim that that a, a, a key distinguishing feature between autistic people and people who are not autistic yep. is that those who are autistic do not have the ability to be able to mentalize, to be able right. to ascribe beliefs and intentions to other people. In an intuitive fashion. In, in an intuitive fashion. Although some, as you've pointed out, and, and we could talk more about that yeah. in the future, some are able to compensate and develop. They do that. And so yeah. forth. But, but forgetting about that for the time yeah. being, this, that, that there is an innate lack of, of this ability. And this has a neurological basis, this right. ability. This is what I'm calling innate. It's some right. kind of, of system in the brain probably relatively late in evolution as far as we, we can tell because it's not pervasive in all animal species perhaps. Right. Um, so here we are, this little bit of, of brain system right. is not working as it should right. in the autistic brain. And, 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 and this is the claim, and as you say, it's, it's not fact, it's a claim, but it's a claim which has also been and it's important to specify, and I was shocked when I, when I read about this, it's a claim which has been supported experimentally, Absolutely. both in terms of, of rigorous experimental uh, psychological tests of behavior, which I would like you to explain, okay. but also in terms of, of neurological examinations of brain scans and so forth as well. There's yeah. evidence to support this claim. So, I, so, so you have, uh, I'm sure everybody's just dying to know what these dolls have to do with ah. the discussion. But here seems to be a good opportunity for you to give a description of, of why a piece of, a strong piece of experimental uh, evidence to support, to support this. Yes, this I think it is probably also quite a good idea to, to if I just demonstrate this I test. Should, I think you should. Um, because it gives an idea as to what we mean by mentalizing. Mentalizing is a completely made up word. And uh, we had to make up a word because people hadn't been talking about disability before. Mm -hmm. Disability to attribute mental states mm -hmm. or sometimes called theory of mind. But this, I think, makes... It gives some something concrete to what it's all about. So just um, just this is the scenario. So we have these two dolls, and they are the original dolls used by Sam Baron Cohen for his uh, PhD um, thesis, his first experiment in probably 1983, 84, something like that. So um, they're holding up remarkably well, I must say. Ah, uh, there are several editions of these. <laughs> okay. um, there have been many different uses. But by the way, you don't have to have dolls. You can use real people. You can use all sorts of things. But they, they were they were just the real dolls. So this one is called Sally, and this one is called Anne. Now um, Sally has a basket. And Anne has a box, right? She has this box in front of her. Right. Oh, sorry. Let's put this away. Now, Sally has this marble, and she puts the marble into her basket. And now, she wants to go out and play, right? She leaves the scene. She goes completely away. Meanwhile, naughty Anne goes to the basket. She takes out that marble, and she puts it into her own box. There. We have that basket covered. 
Yes, Anne, maybe we clean her. And now it's time for Sally to come back. And she comes back and she wants to play with her marble. Now we would say to the child, where will Sally look for her marble? Will you play the child? I would, I would like, which child would you like me to play? The you play child or the, the uh, ordinary child, the ordinary a four-year-old. Four Imagine yourself as a four-year-old. You would say, you would already say, of course she will look in her right there, right in the basket, basket that's because right. that's where she put it. She wasn't there when Anne. She would have no way of knowing. Of she has no way of knowing. So she has a false belief. That's why it's often called a false belief test. And the false belief, of course, you don't make this explicit when you are four years old, but this false belief lets you predict what she will do. Right. It makes the right prediction. She will look there, she will not find the marble. All the while, the child knows where the marble really is. We ask, we say, where, where was the marble really? Right. So that we don't get some other mistakes and the child will say, it's, it's here. So the normal child will understand uh, that, that Sally believes with complete justification yes, that's that, it. that the marble that's will it. be in there. That's she right. would, yeah. and, and so the, the normal child is getting in, as it were, to the head of yeah, Sally yeah, yeah. And, and looking at it from Sally's perspective. That's right. Now. Um, this, this experiment was actually devised by um, two uh, extremely clever psychologists, Josef Perner and Heinz Wimmer right. in Austria. And they used it with normal children. And, uh, you know, during development, they said most five-year-olds get this. Most three-year-olds just completely adults. And then, of course, older children wouldn't want to play such a childish game. <laughs> um, we were so happy to have that paradigm when Simon Baron Cohen started his thesis, Alan Leslie, was another advisor, and we thought this experiment should be done with autistic children. And I, have, we, I really predicted they could do this, actually. Really? So you were quite surprised? I was then. very, very ah, surprised. These were quite clever children. Sure. They were not, you know, they had good language, they had good memory, they right. knew what it was. But what, in fact, um, Simon found in his experiments was that the majority of the autistic children, about three quarters of them, gave the wrong answer. They said, Sally will look here in the box. And of course, you can ask different variations of the question, like where does uh, Sally think the marble is, or make it in some other way more salient. But very, very uh, uh, often, when this, was, this type of experiment was repeated, the autistic children um, didn't seem to take the belief of another agent into account as it was a real person or a doll or whatever, but they acted according to reality. The real state of affairs was, here's a marble. So in other words, in a situation where, where, which might well occur in real life, they couldn't make the right prediction of what a per where a person will look, what a person will do. They would get it wrong. Right. How it looks from their perspective, as it were. It would be in terms of what they know, what there is in reality, that would be the, the, the reason for making their predictions of behavior. Mm. And that is exactly what this special innate mechanism allows us to overcome. Mm. So beliefs are more important than reality in these situations. Mm. So as Alan Leslie always uh, used this example, um, he would say, why does uh, uh, John go out with an umbrella? It's not because it is raining, it's actually not raining, but he believes 
it will rain. That's why he takes the umbrella. That's how you can predict it. In fact, you can predict he will take an umbrella if you know he doesn't want to get wet. Right. So he, this is also the desire uh, psychology, another mental state. You attribute certain desires, just like beliefs, to other people. Right. And, and this is how you go about um, in the social world. Sure. If you're successful, at, at any rate, otherwise you're, you're, you yeah. have some serious difficulties because you, you just simply can't, uh, as we've said, uh, ascribe beliefs or, or understanding of, of what other people are thinking. There was so another... Ex oh, sorry. I this, was just but this is, this is the kind of starting of this whole idea about theory of mind and how important it was, perhaps in autism. And it was also the starting point of us saying what on earth enables uh, young children and, and adults, of course, to think that way. Um, and the really daring hypothesis was, A, there is a special brain mechanism for it. Most people thought this was crazy. Most people thought along the lines of everything is conscious inference. You know, hundreds of things must be in place before this can be done. You need to be age four to put two and two together. You do it always with the whole of your brain. You know, you use your language, you use your memory, um, and then you add it all together and you solve this problem. And of course, uh, after all these decades of research, I think people are now agreed that no, you don't have to do this in a conscious way if you are not autistic. You can do this in this sort of shortcut way without thinking about it consciously. And therefore, people have already shown that very young babies, aged seven months, mm. act in a way that uh, that is just by, by looking at, at, at where they look, um, that they kind of anticipate actions on the basis of somebody's belief. Rather than so, on so the even basis though they can't of speak, action. you can still tell yeah. just by their eye movements yeah, and by their, right. by their facial expressions. But this is a different strand of experimentation that was sort of done outside the field of autism to find out how this develops in, in ordinary uh, cognitive development. Mm. And um, what we tried to study really was this, this directly have a look at this neurological uh, um, underpinning of the ability to mentalize. I mean, a pretty, pretty daring thing to do, pretty high risk. High risk, perhaps, but it, but but this is the way science, it seems to me, is done. And and what a what a groundbreaking result! Uh, the idea that you have experimental evidence, uh, clear experimental evidence, clear statistical evidence to support uh, uh, those people who are uh, who are autistic, uh, rather the distinction uh, between those people who are autistic and those people who are not autistic, um, and able to say, here's a clear. Uh, experiment that we can perform. Here's a clear behavioral difference. You might be able to interpret the results in one way or another way, or, or I'm, I'm constructing this theory, this theory of mind and mentalizing to be able to do it, but clearly there's something different. Um, and that, that must have been extremely exciting, and it must have yes. led to all sorts of... It, uh, it was uh, extremely uh, exciting. It was, it was a, 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 the, the idea was, was possible to be tested because we suddenly had the uh, brain scanners available right. and the idea was that we can use some kind of mental subtraction we can say people are asked to think about a, a, a scenario like this right. Sally Ann and we see what the brain does so lots happens? and lots of things well let me tell you about the subtraction you can't tell anything if you just look at the brain it's just terribly active Perfect. So that's not the way to, to, right. to use the technique. Right. The technique is used by asking them to think about something that's incredibly similar, 
but doesn't involve mentalizing. So what would that be? In, uh, in our first experiment using brain scanners, we used little stories that, that they read. And one story would be, for example, the Sally Ann story mm -hmm. or something like that. It was actually done with adults. Normal adults, completely healthy adults, say, just read this little story and then we ask a question. Why did um, Sally look in her basket? Think silently. Uh, brain is active all over the place. And then we had little stories which said things like... Um, they had some kind of physical, mechanical, cause and effect relationship. Um, maybe um, or, or somebody had to... Uh, sorry, I'm, I'm now um, being very confused because we did many, many different kinds of stories. But something that didn't involve people examining the, the, the mental states of something, other people. Something that was, something maybe that just was factual, actually factual, John physical, mechanical. The store, and the question was, like why that. did John buy a pack of six light bulbs right. when he only needed one? Right. Of course, the story explained that uh, right. it, was a, it was a good buy to do right. that. It was a good buy, or he only had a certain amount of money, or something. something yeah. that's a, it was a completely straightforward. So we subtract the brain activity of one kind of thinking about one kind of story, answering the question right. from the other. And what's left so it's a mask, is a difference. It's it's a, exactly. there's this, uh, the brain, of course, as, yeah. you, as you pointed it's out, completely, is completely active all the time. Going all over the place. Yeah. At least most people's brains. Yeah. Um, I'm not sure about <laughs> <laughs> mine all the time. But, 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 but the general idea. The is brain that, is <laughs> doing things happen. all the time. So, um, but the subtraction allows you to see that little bit. Right. What's the difference? Where, here's the, mental, the mentalizing like, brain as opposed to the non-mentalizing yeah, so brain. We've, we, we've actually got, even in that very first study, which was very tentative, a particular network, frontal, temporal, and temporal parietal, this kind of network, different places, but they are interconnected. And that seems to be the, the one thing that was active over and above what's active for sort of working out uh, uh, the, the, the solution to a particular problem in, as presented in a little story. Mm -hmm. After this, lots of other materials have been used. Pictures, cartoon stories, um, moving triangles. Um, and it was, it's always a subtraction of one being right. requiring mentalizing, the other being to all intents and purposes the same, but not requiring mentalizing. Right. And that's how, how we can... How we can uh, fathom that there is something extra, that, something that's, separate. That's a fantastic result, and that must have been tremendously exciting It is, exciting it is exciting, this, this but, but uh, remember, it's not as exciting as it should be, as it could be in the future, because in order to get this result, we have to sum up, we average the brain activity from a whole lot of people. Right. We can't do this for each individual person. And furthermore, we can't do it for a particular story. We have to sum it over you know, 12 stories of one kind, 12 stories of another kind. So there is a lot of noise in there. Right. The instruments are just not good enough to do this in a way that you could say, oh, look at my brain. Am I now mentalizing or not? And I would say, actually, we're not there yet. We can't do that. The instruments are not microscopic enough. Right. All I can say is that if I do this with you a 100 times, and you might get then bored, and, and, and you might not actually think the way I want you to think. Right. 
and then a hundred times the other stories and then subtracted it, maybe I could see something. But that's very suggestive, nonetheless. I, I, I understand that. And I want to talk a little bit uh, about the brain scan technology because this is something that I was certainly not aware of that I, I think is, is fascinating and worth, worthy of comment. But nonetheless, I think the central result however limited we are by the current level of technology with brain scan yeah, technology. It, it is that it's, very, it's very suggestive. It's There's a statistical correlation, at least a strong statistical yeah. correlation, um, that leads us to suggest that when people are mentalizing, they are using a, a different aspect of their brain, different right. areas of their brain than when they are not. That's and, exactly so. Then this system has been verified again and again. It is there when you think about yourself, when you do all sorts of tasks. Compared to these contrasting things, but moreover, of course, we did it in order to look at autistic people doing the same thing. Right. So these are again these very very clever people who can think and can do these things. They thought about these stories. Of course, they got the right answers. I said, if they have enough time, they will get the right answers. But the activity in the brain, again, over a whole group of people, over a whole lot of stories, was less reduced. So it is a little bit puzzling because it's sort of slightly, well, saying, okay, um, they seem to have that same network, but it's not acting as efficiently. Uh, later on, people have shown this again and again. It's not quite the same activation pattern. And the best possible guess at the moment, uh, again, backed by evidence, is that the connectivity between the different areas is very weak in the case of autism. So it seems that the kind of, the system is just not properly connected together. So, so just to summarize again from my uh, objective slash ignorant perspective, <clears throat> you have similar types of activation in the brain, yeah. not quite to the same extent, yeah. and there yeah, are concerns yeah, yeah. about how, uh, how the connectivity between the different regions is, That's is right. actually working. That's right. And of course you know from doing your Salian experiments yeah. and other experiments, or at least your strongly convinced, yeah. maybe knows, again, I don't want, uh, I don't want to be alienating anybody <laughs> else who has a different view, but you're strongly convinced there's a wealth of experimental evidence to suggest yeah. that there is a, a, a deep difference between, in this mentalizing ability, between those who are autistic and those yes. who are not. And you would, and now you have some, in addition to experimental psychological uh, evidence, now you have some the scanning, neurological, neurological evidence, evidence that, backs, that yeah. backs you up to show there is a difference yeah, there. Absolutely. There is a statistical difference. I totally believe in that. And in fact, I, I, would, I would make a bet that this will, uh, with, with better instruments, we will get much clearer view of this. It will not be demolished, but we shall really see what's going on. And one of the things that has not yet been done is conduct a study with truly intuitive mentalizing. Most of the studies that have been done actually allow this explicit mentalizing to happen because they're very right. slow, right. they present the materials in a very sort of conscious way uh, so that the uh, autistic people who are in the scanner can actually do a lot by compensation. What their brain would look like if we had a truly implicit, quick, intuitive task, we don't even know yet. I think this is where we should find the biggest difference. Well, that's fantastic. The, the on the other hand, we're still limited by the technology. And, yes. and, and one of the things I, I, I would just like to specify again, because I'm, I'm trying to mentalize and put myself in the state yes. of somebody yes. who, who, uh, who doesn't know anything yes. about this. Um, 
my naive view when I heard about brain scans, which you think yeah, about yeah. when you're uh, watching Star Trek or whatever right. it is, there's a sense of, well, somebody can just yeah. uh, get a snapshot of the neurological activity of in the brain. Course, there's of a course. sense of, oh, I can tell which, yeah. which clusters you, you, and which you synapses. You take the analogy to an x-ray. That's right. Yeah, so my hand is visible there, and, and in, you can see whether the bone structure is, is, is right or, or wrong. Right. That's, that's x-ray. Right. And in a way, that's what we want these... Um, brain uh, imaging methods to be like in the future, but right. they're not there yet. Right. And, and, and what in fact is being measured, because I'm thinking, I know enough to know that there are, neuron, sorry, that there are neurons and there are electrical stimuli that are being right. sent down, synapse, yeah, blah, blah, yeah, blah, 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 yeah, yeah. that are connecting. And that's the big game because I want to know how my neurons are actually there acting. Is, there is a huge gap between right. looking at a brain scanner and seeing millions of neurons being active or not, and only indirectly active right. because it's all about blood flow. Exactly. And, that, and, that's, my, and, that's, and that's, that's what I was completely ignorant of, because I, I, was, yeah. I was of the view, I think I just smashed my mic here, but I was of the view that um, that you're actually measuring the, the, the neural, activity. Neural, neural activity. But of, what you're actually yes. measuring is you're measuring the blood, blood flow, flow. And the rate of blood flow, which is supplying the energy to those parts of the brain so that, that need the energy because yeah. they're the ones that are being active. Yeah, that, that's very reasonable, but it, it is a few steps to it, get it the absolutely. activity it's, in the neurons. It's a fantastic technological uh, piece of uh, machinery and progress. Um, it just wasn't, again, from my naive perspective, it wasn't what I thought was actually going well, on. Well, this is, this is, this is, you know, we are really at the beginning of this really exciting new discovery of, of the mind, right. of, of the brain, how the brain works. We just don't know it yet. It's, it's very comparable, I think, to the astronomers who had... Uh, maybe in the uh, 15th, 16th century, some slightly better uh, lenses to look at the sky, and they saw a little bit more. Right. But still, they couldn't see very well. And it was still a time where you could only guess what might be out there. Right. It would have been wrong to say, well, all that I that's there is what we can see through these lenses at the moment. That right. That's just nonsense. Absolutely. So... Um, I think the same will happen in the discovery of the mind. It will be like this, you know, a, a universe with, within as opposed to the universe outside. We, we, we now know it's possible to get there. We now know that right. we can do things. And there are people, of course, who start from the exact, um, well, of, of the sort of molecular end. They, they look at the single cell, a, a single neuron taken from, say, a, a, a rat brain or something like that, right. and understand what goes in, what goes out, how cells signal to each other, and how they make these big assemblies, and then how they turn into maybe brain networks, and whole pathways have to be created through learning, through all sorts of things. So all of this is, is happening at this very, very molecular level. And it's very impressive that we know in principle how cells work, how synapses work. But at the other level of cognitive uh, neuroscience, we are still uh, trying to to find out what, what, how our thoughts are represented in the brain. And I guess the, the goal is at, at some level to have these two we need meet, to meet. I think that's the exciting thing. It's surely like like digging a, a huge tunnel <laughs> where you really you should bear in mind that you're both doing it from both ends. It seems to me at the moment that that there is a lack of awareness that we are actually uh, should be joining in this enterprise. There is a little bit um, of um, perhaps understandable sort of enthusiasm, saying 
we get there from bottom up, you know, single cell, two cells together, getting more, getting electrical um, information across and, and seeing how, how things become to bigger sorts. And from the other side, it's saying, forget about all that. If we talk about feelings, if we talk about uh, mentalizing, these are big concepts. We can't map them up to single cells and neurons. It's millions, it's right. billions. Um, and, and they all, you know, somehow are, are connected to each other in very strange uh, ways that we don't quite understand. Um, so um, the two sides are not yet Oh, but that's, that's part of the, the, the glory yeah. of science. I think, I think it must have will. been tremendously exciting for you, and like almost like a revelation when, when brain scans were first developed. Because I'm yes, sure when, was, when, you were, when you were younger and when you started mm. your, your work in psychology, the idea that we to would look have at any, the living brain, any real absolutely time notion of, no, of thought must no. have been just, just like science fiction. It's absolutely right. And we, of course, did rely very much on neuropsychological data from naturally occurring lesions in the brain. Right. And that gave some kind of insight in already in maybe how specialized certain parts of the brain are for things like language or vision. Um, and and that, that was, of course, part of that same drive to want to know more and to also remove this idea of this dualism of mind and right. brain, mm -hmm. seeing, well, if that bit of the brain has been lesioned by some accident, by some trauma, you won't be able to do that however much you want to. You know, it's right. not your mind over matter here anymore. Sure. You just have to it's take it. Yeah. And you see the frustrating thing, I suppose, in these developmental neurological conditions where something is slightly different from birth, slightly wrong in a way, um, there's nothing visible. There is no lesion. We couldn't do these kinds of neuropsychological experiments. And even now, when people look at the brain um, post-mortem in autism, Oh, it's very difficult to pinpoint exactly what's different um, and, and, and what matters, you know, what's critically different. I mean, ev every single brain is different, of course. Yeah. Um, and and we, we, we have this huge spectrum of autism, so there are many, many differences due to all sorts of things. Um, not only uh, intelligence, but also um, it may be different in, in, in males and in females. It may be different in... Um, at different ages and depending on what kind of compensatory learning you could do, personality, temperament, all of these things, that in the, eventually you should be able to see in, in some kind of physiological right. sense in of the course. brain. We are not there yet, but we will, we will get there. I wanted to ask you, uh, back up a little bit, we've talked, we've talked extensively of, of the theory of mind and mentalizing and the experiments yeah. that can be done to support that view, uh, both on the, on the psychological side of things and the, the neurobiological side right. of things. Um, we've mentioned this idea, or you've mentioned this idea of it being a, a developmental disorder. Yes. Um, and in reading through uh, some of your books, um, there is a sense that, uh, so correct me if I'm wrong, but there's a sense that in, in the vast majority of cases, um, the symptoms characteristic of autism do not appear normally until the second year, or around 18 months yeah, or something yeah, like yeah, that. Yeah. And so there is an understandable sense of panic and desolation that a parent will have, yes. feeling uh, my child has been perfectly yeah, normal, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, everything's That's going right. along uh, yes. wonderfully well. And then all of a sudden, something yeah. something seems to happen when when the child yeah, is yeah, roughly yeah. from around eighteen months on. I, I, is that is that a fair? That's, that's fair, a fair description, I think. So, yeah. So um, 
and and hence this notion of developmental that whether we can talk yes, and we will talk right. hopefully a little bit about yeah. about the genetic underpinnings or non-genetic underpinnings of, of that but at this point i'm putting myself again trying to mentalize in, in, the, in the perspective of a of a fraught parent yes um and the fraught parent will have a natural tendency to say well, look, my child was completely yeah, healthy. Yeah, yeah. Then this happened. They're here on the radio of talks yeah, of yeah, epidemics yeah. that we've talked about before. And, and there is a natural tendency to start looking for environmental factors that there might have, is, might have is, triggered yeah, this sort of yeah. thing. And there was, uh, as you have written about and other people have written about, there was, uh, a, some people were of the view that vaccinations were to blame for this. There was a particular triple vaccination of measles, right. mumps, and rubella, and so forth. That, that was and, the one that was blamed for right. an increase in autism. And, and, and you can certainly understand the chain of reasoning that led to that, yes. in the sense that um, my child seemed fine. Yeah. Yeah. Um, uh, Absolutely. What, the, here, is, here is the objective thing that happened when they were roughly at the age when they were starting to Absolutely. show symptoms. They were vaccinated with this. Um, and so that uh, that led to this 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 great fear and, and perhaps even movement in some areas that vaccination was somehow responsible yeah, yeah. for for autism. And my understanding is that people did careful studies of, of they did careful studies. It had to be taken seriously as a hypothesis. It seemed you know well let's investigate this. Right. It was investigated, and it was absolutely not supported by study after study. But it, it took an incredibly long time to convince people that this was just not true. It was just one of these many hypotheses that right. you could have that are worth considering, that sure. worth investigating. Sure. Turned out to be blind alley, you've got to reject it. Of course, there's still people who would not accept that even now. They're just so completely wedded to this idea that it's what but must it, have there's happened. there's no, no shred of scientific evidence. There it, is no scientific evidence right. for it at all. And it's, it's not because there was some kind of uh, denial and, and, and uh, some kind of effort to, to hide uh, uh, under, under, under some, uh, you know, problems about the, the use of vaccination, which is so very beneficial so for no all of us. There's no it's, conspiracy. There's, there's no scientific evidence. It's yeah, wrong. It's, yeah, a, it's, yeah. it's a plausible hypothesis that turned out That's to be wrong. That's just turned out to be wrong. Exactly. Right. Right. Um, and and it is it, it, we do have to acknowledge that we we as as human beings we want to have explanations we sure. need to know why something happened particularly um, if it's one's child and one can understand the emotional absolutely and and this is still going on there are still ideas that you know are often very outlandish um, you know you suddenly say my God can people really think that this could cause autism in their child well it it is like um, such desire to have some something to to hang on to, possibly something that exonerates you in some sense from blame, possibly something. Especially if you live in France, as it happens. But anyway, that's. A... Uh, I didn't know about that, but. <laughs> no, I was you... talking about the the psychologist. Yeah. I, okay. I tell you, it's your fault because you're. you're yeah, you're, that's you're... true. That's true. So um, we have to turn to to the the biological basis, to uh, a genetic basis in the end. And there is is an uh, enormous amount of research going on that shows that there isn't just a gene responsible. There isn't even a handful of genes that's responsible. There isn't even, uh, you know, knowledge about particular genes that would account for all of autism. It seems that there, each bit of autism of this whole spectrum has their own causes. 
Right. So it's almost like you can really get into some kind of idea. For, for example, uh, a more recent idea is that there are mutations happening. So you're not inheriting this from your parents. It's a mutation that happens um, in the sperm, for example, or in the egg. Uh, and and that gives uh, leads to autism. That can happen. But again, it's only a minority of cases where this has been actually... Uh, uh, investigated and shown it will not be true for all cases. But however, however complicated and abstruse uh, the particular genetic mechanism or mechanisms may be, we do have considerable confidence that it is a genetic mechanism. And, 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 yes. and, and, and from what I understand, uh, there is strong experiment, very strong experimental evidence from the, the, the twin data and so forth that suggests that yes, we can be confident that however complicated, maybe we won't understand it for a yeah. hundred years, yeah, yeah. but, but there is something yeah. genetic going on as opposed to something environmental, be it a vaccine or something else. Yeah. So we don't really have exactly. to pay too much attention worrying about any other possible yeah, that's environmental right. trigger. That, that's, that's what I believe. Um, but there are toxins and things that might play a role with a predisposition, sure. Sure. Uh, but not without it. There we are, have good reason to believe that pre predisposition is there, genetic. The predisposition is, is what it's all about, prob probabilities. So um, all, all the sort of genetic research shows that even if you have the predisposition, you don't necessarily have to get whatever right. this predisposes you for, because there might be mitigating right. factors. There might be ways of, of making you particularly resilient, uh, which again are genetically caused sure. uh, things. Sure. So um, you don't necessarily uh, have to have that sort of fatalistic view, which says nothing can be done about it. That doesn't follow from thinking about sure. these genetic causes. Sure. Sure. There are ways of thinking about this as a, as a very, very complex interplay of rather random factors that might happen um, that might make things better for some, right. or worse, worse for others. For others. Right. Um, all sorts of uh, hazards can happen during early neural development. It's a very complex story. Um, it's quite obvious that most of the cognitive faculties that you typically human can be totally intact and functioning well in people still can't do this mentalizing and show other signs of autism on top of it so it's something subtle it's something incredibly subtle it's not like um having a non-viable organism it's just not like right. that it's right. a good brain right. and uh, many people of course are arguing that it's it's very wrong to see it as an abnormality or disease or disorder because it is such a subtle thing that it really falls under kind of normal personality variations. Well, presumably that, that has some, something to do with, again, the level of autism that we're talking about. I think so, so, so I yes. Mean, clearly there, there are people who are suffering from, uh, uh, and again, uh, my understanding is, so I'm, I'm suggesting to you, mm -hmm. as the, the increasingly good student that I hope to become, um, <laughs> that uh, since there's such a wide variety yep. of, of people who suffer from autism or, or who are involved in an autism spectrum disorder, you have people who are, as we as we had pointed out, uh, formally classified as mentally retarded, uh, and they ha they they are, have serious impairments in functioning in their in their day to day life, and then one has uh, people on the other end of the spectrum, and as you had written about, uh, specifically but not limited to people with Asperger's yes, syndrome, right. that that Hans Asperger himself was of the view 
that, um, that there was some clear correlation between works of, of genius and accomplishment in the arts and sciences and so forth, yeah, and, and, yeah. and this condition. Um, is that, is, that, is that a fair yeah, summary? I think that's an absolutely correct summary. And, and that, uh, from, from that sort of part of the spectrum, you really cannot but think, yes, we're talking about some kind of personality variation. Right. There is a huge heterogeneity in, 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 in uh, individual uh, lives um, of, of human beings, and you, uh, you cannot say one is uh, better than the other or one is healthier than the other. That's absolute nonsense. There is this variation. And uh, what we at the moment call autistic or autistic-like is perhaps part of this personality variation. But I think there is a difference. Um, to um, all of those cases who really um, actually show a lot of possibly suffering as well. Maybe not themselves, but their families and, and other people. And I think to dismiss them lightly as saying, oh, it's just, just a variation, just personality. is not right. Not at all. Um, it's quite callous, in fact. It is actually kind of important to to really concentrate and say, how can we help right. these families? Right. And uh, it, it's very interesting that um, so much learning can happen. That it is it's very encouraging to think that yes, even if you um, you have a child who has. A lot of severe problems that sometimes go together with autism, like very little language, like uh, being being very um, uncoordinated, having sort of uh, attention deficits, and 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 generally being very very limited in yes. in daily activities. You can do a lot about that by um, appropriate programs, and there are good techniques available, good practice. And again, here of course is a is an area where where the quacks come in, and the charlatans, and, and praise their particular programs. So parents have to be very, very much aware that they should only go for those programs where, where there is a scientific basis, where there is some evidence that they can say, yes, that has shown to be good, and not to be um, taken in by people who promise uh, un unhelpful things. And that does include the psychoanalysts. I'm sure. Uh, but I, I want to come back to this certainly at the end, and I and I know I've been holding you here for a very long time, but I have a few more questions. Of course, if I may, if I may we've only them. so far considered the social aspects of the core of autism. Right. We haven't really considered the non-social aspects. Right, and I, I, and that's exactly what I want to do. But before, right before I do, I want to consider something that I think is might be relevant. One of the things that I, I know is in the public consciousness as well, something that I certainly had no understanding of, was I, I heard this word Asperger's syndrome. Oh, yes. I don't know what it is. All right. Um, and it seems, as, as we were saying before, there's a breadth. I understand there's a breadth. But there seems to be something quite different. About, I heard that Hans Asperger was involved in the early days yes. of, of, of the founding of autism studies and so forth. And then there's this Asperger's syndrome. So, so what is that? What is Asperger's syndrome, and and how might it differ from from the normal uh, aspects of, of autism? And that's that's my first question, and and then just to, to key it up, um, I'd like to spend a little bit of time talking about something that again people would have in the public uh, consciousness, I would imagine, which is this notion of the this the savant, this the the Rain Man type of idea that even though 
He's, he's terribly dysfunctional in many ways. He has these incredible areas of expertise and, right. and, and ability. Mm. Um, but, uh, but first, perhaps uh, you can give me a definition of what Asperger's syndrome is as close uh, as well as, <laughs> as, as, as however you'd like to define Even it. Even Asperger's syndrome is something that uh, has a slightly slippery definition that changes. And it's, it's, at the moment, it's coming out of favor, unfortunately. Oh, yes. Oh, I, I didn't know that. Um, why, is, why is that? Well, Asperger's syndrome, quite to say quite briefly, is really a form of autism. So why shouldn't you call it autism, is the question. Okay. And at the moment, there is a big trend to say, let's call it autism. Okay. Just for completeness, it is, completeness yes. purposes. Given that autism is so very, very different, um, it's perfectly fine to say, this is also autism, and not give it that separate label. But the label does do an interesting job and serves an interesting purpose. It does um, tell you that it's perfectly possible not to have any learning disability. It's perfectly possible to have really, really fluent language mm -hmm. and uh, still to have the features of autism, which are um, a difficulty in communicating and in mentalizing and a, a very uh, concentration on narrow stereotypical interests, kind of repetitive well. behavior, right. um, being somewhat, you know, set and rigid in your life, all of this coming together as a package, mm. being sort of uh, personified uh, by the, um, you know, the child who is a little professor, who has some amazing, say, ability in, in playing chess, uh, beats, uh, you know, even the, the very experienced adults, talks in a language that's extraordinarily advanced for his age, but doesn't play with other children, isn't interested in, uh, in joining up with sort of kind of typical childlike games, right. um, is also perhaps uh, uh, too narrow about being only interested in chess right. and not anything else, and being, being generally a, a, a little bit... Um, um, yeah, uh, not quite like other children, even though in a very good sense, and right. you know, in a, in a sense that parents uh, are rightly proud of, a sort of little genius. And of course, this idea of having a little genius when you have an autistic child—that's uh, the idea that's been been used in in practically all the the kind of movies that have been made about right. autism. Right. And that started with Rain Man right. in 1989, yeah. which I think, as, as a film, it portrayed autism in a, in a very truthful way, mm -hmm. in one sense, but also in a totally romantic and exaggerated way in, in other ways. So that um, the, the, the Rain Man character had these... Uh, incredible savant skills. Right. That is, of course, something pretty rare to the extent that he had them. Savant skills by themselves are not that rare, but that is sort of like there are abilities that are rather superior that you can find, like memory ability, reading ability, compared to others, other abilities yeah. or musical ability. But the sort of you know world-beating memory kind of sure. uh, the excellence, Hollywood, the Hollywood type. <laughs> is actually rather rare sure. and you can't assume that you know that that's typical of any autistic person sure. you will meet sure. or any Asperger person um, you can't you can't really expect that that's sort of very depressing for parents if that's you know they say you expect it because there are these wonderful individual cases right. um, they do exist these totally prodigious savants who um, 
who are kind of wonders of, of, of the world. And, and they are extremely interesting. They are, it seems to me, that they are, uh, they all have autism. It's not that you can be that and not have all these other features of being sort of single-minded and, right. and, and not so possibly so interested in, in your peers and, and, and social communication. But these people also show how much they like to be in the social sphere, how they thrive on the attention they get. They actually show you that they are really uh, fun people. They are very, very nice and engaging. Um, you, you, you can see uh, little videos and so on of, right. of, different, of right. different characters, mm -hmm. and you can see how they thrive on, on being fated, on being right. nurtured in this particular way. Now, this can also be done with the, the other cases who are not such outstanding, fantastic talents. And you do find um, some kind of talent in, in really very many cases, I think. And I think that was, that was one, of the, one of the great puzzles that I, um, I felt needed to be explained, how the mind can work in such a way that some things seem to be so good. And, you know, you had this feats of memory, for example, and yet at the same time this memory wasn't used in order perhaps to get meaning from the world. Right. So this was one of the theories that I um, pursued. And that sort of also, I think, has stood the test of time. Also, it, it is less accepted uh, than the uh, uh, mentalizing theory. And this, I, I called it uh, weak central coherence on the grounds that um, we have a sort of striving normally to uh, make sense of the world in a sort of big way, in a very holistic way, right. going to meaning in, in ever bigger ways. So that, that seems to be a kind of drive we, we put on our information processing system. We want to get so that meeting. look at the meeting. bigger picture. Look at the bigger say. picture. Never mind if you the have detail. to lose the detail. Right. Uh, that I would call strong central coherence. So everything should cohere, something should be there. But there is, again, an individual variation. There are people who are not going for this. They're going for the detail. They're going for the actual, truthful, verbatim, factual things. And the meaning is not such an overriding concern. Now, that, that was sort of very uh, beginnings of this series. This really shifted in, in quite interesting ways so that there is a balance that perhaps you can uh, switch from being holistic to detailed or from detailed to being holistic. And at this point in time, I think it may be a theory that can be applied only to a subgroup of this autism spectrum. But it's an interesting subgroup because they, the ones who are really interested in detail, seem to be very likely to have some kind of savant skill that mm -hmm. has to do with detail. Mm -hmm. um, so finding um, embedded figures when other people completely, you know, see yeah. and couldn't really see this, right. or this particularly excellent memory for verbatim detail, uh, no noticing uh, changes in the environment, which uh, you and I probably wouldn't, would overlook completely. Uh, the kind of mind that's a sort of um, uh, able to um, to set aside the kind of illusions that might otherwise be given to us by our 
holistic perception. You have a wonderful uh, example, a wonderful, well, I was going to say metaphor, except that you, one can actually look at it literally, which is this idea of, of, of a puzzle, that, that, uh, that uh, one can notice that at least yeah. some, some categories of these autistic children yes. can actually do a puzzle independent. They're not even necessarily looking That's right. at the actual exactly pieces right. of, at, of, of, I, of the puzzle. I, I found that absolutely astonishing, but this is true. It seems to me that they really can do this without looking at the overall so you picture. You can even turn it over and, and have it all blank. And they're just looking at the shapes. Absolutely. They're not being guided. We're all guided by saying, oh, we're going to do a little bit yeah, of the chair yeah. over here and a little yeah. bit of this. You work on the chair, I'll work on the, yeah. the piano, and we'll put together this puzzle of this room. Whereas they, they will, they will, at least many of these people will, will process information completely Yeah, so this is a different style of information processing. And many have actually argued, many of my collaborators, in particular Francesca Happy, that this is a style of information processing which is totally distributed in the normal population. So you can find that in people who are not autistic, of right. course. Right. They're just like that. Right. They can do these jigsaw puzzles right. upside down. Right. Right. And there is nothing autistic about them. So, in fact, her argument is that, yes, it does coincide with sort of classic autism, but it's a completely, it's a separate personality dimension, which has nothing to do in its sort of neurological genetic origin with the mentalizing problem. But, but doesn't it have, so, uh, just a question, again, I don't want to sound presumptuous, but it, but it seems to me those are two different statements. So one statement is, no, there's a broad spectrum of humanity yeah. when there's the super detail yeah. uh, orientation yeah. on one side and there's the, the, the super gestalt yeah. idea, yeah. Yeah. big picture on the other side, and that all human beings fall somewhere in the spectrum. Well, most but, fall in the middle, okay, and most fine, can do both. Fine, most fall in the middle. But that's a separate statement to saying, that, be that as it may, the overwhelming statistical majority of autism individuals fall, happen to fall over here. And that's, yes. And, and it seems like that's yes. suggestive of... Of something. Some connection. Uh, but it could be just historical that these, these things stood out together and we will okay. actually find that we could separate them out and we may have dif different diagnostic categories eventually for this. At the moment I believe the diagnostic category is too unwieldy, too wide, it's not useful. And we will have to uh, come to these subcategories. We don't know what they right. should be yet. Right. But this could be a kind of guidance. This could be saying, right. I mean, I know exactly what the classic autistic child should be like, as described by Kanna originally. The child who has this aloofness, isn't, isn't connecting with the world, and who also has stereotype behaviors, who is very rigid, and who has also some kind of relatively outstanding ability. Now, that package I recognize. The question is, is that package due to the same kind of underlying processes that produce right. this, or is it a, a sort of coincidence, sort of coincidence? Also, I've rejected the idea it's a coincidence. I mean, <laughs> that we just don't know yet. We don't know yet right. whether this is a particular subgroup, which we should say, okay, that's the kind of type. Right. Uh, the Asperger type is actually really very similar, except it seems all much milder. It seems all much more to do with good language, while the Kanna type has to do with bad language, not good language on the whole, very, very impaired language. Again, people say, why, is, why don't you explain that specifically, this impaired language? And you could say, oh, okay, that's another add-on. You know, it's a superimposed thing that you happen to get. You know, you, you are in this, on this hazardous developmental path, 
one thing has gone wrong already, another thing has gone right, wrong, right, and now we come to language, hey, that's all, you know, it could be yeah. going wrong in many different ways. Um, we have tried to explain the language difficulties in terms of lack of mentalizing, um, but that doesn't fit with the Asperger type where language problems don't occur, but the mentalizing problems do. There could be degrees of this mentalizing ability. We don't yet know. At the moment, that's sort of quite difficult to think about. Um, we haven't got, I suppose, quite refined enough um, behavioral tests. Uh, people are really thinking about what is it that we could do to make it... Um, exactly uh, yeah, to, to really clarify the, the kind of degrees that right. you might have. People have said, isn't it the case that ordinary individuals, you know, forget about autism, differ in this ability or in their theory of mind and this mentalizing. Well, in terms of how consciously they can be Machiavellian or not, absolutely, that sure. must be so. But in terms of this intuitive, innate thing, I think that's just the same in everybody. I think so. And I think at some level, again, I don't profess to have any expertise in the field whatsoever, but I think there's there's always a danger in getting too carried away with one's hypotheses and, and, oh, and, yes. and overgeneralizing and so forth. But it seems to me there's, there's, there's an equal danger in the other direction, which oh. is not acknowledging obvious correlations, which is trying to say, well, isn't that just all yeah, apart? Aren't yeah, we all yeah, really yeah, different yeah. individuals and yeah, so forth? Not, not acknowledging statistical groupings. Yeah, it's very, very and tricky. There are, there are these discussions that have been going on ever since I can remember. You know, how can you say that somebody is mad. I mean, aren't we all, aren't we all a little bit mad? How, how demeaning it must be to put that label onto somebody. Especially some people who, who are highly active and highly creative throughout the Exactly, throughout the ages. exactly. Um, I think it's again, it's all still a legacy of the dualism, which says, you know, here's the body and the, the brain and there's the mind, which is completely separate. And the mind can't really be um, ill like the body can be ill or uh, have something missing like the body can right. have something missing and, and still I mean something not vital uh, vitally important but right. you know you can live with one kidney you can live with you know less than ten fingers and right. and so on and so forth I think the same applies to the mind and whether you call something normal or abnormal well you have to get used to it I mean in terms of bodily appearance we can say it's not normal not to sure. have ten fingers, sure. but we don't have to necessarily don't have to, uh, make a judgment necessarily. to look down upon people right. who, through no choice of their own, are born with of less course. than ten fingers. Uh, absolutely. I mean, look look to the data if one is going to make some kind of real progress. I mean, one, one of the things also that was astounding to me that I didn't know, one of the many, um, was that, that in terms of diagnosed cases of autism on a completely statistical level, there is a preponderance of there is a, a huge asymmetry between the number of uh, boys or, or men yes. that have been diagnosed yes. as opposed to the number of yeah. women. So one can attribute all sorts of possible explanations for this, but it seems to me if the, if the sample size is large enough and if people, if this is mm -hmm. happening for a long enough period yeah. of time, that's indicative of something neurologically in terms of a right. distinction between men and Absolutely. women. Absolutely. And, and I think to deny that on the basis of, oh, no, we must all be exactly <laughs> the same yes. because that's my no, that's whatever political belief or something. And, and that's quite scientific. suggestive. And, yeah. and, and here's something I'm going to say, um, which might be a little bit provocative and outlandish, because I, I think I should say something that's a okay. little bit provocative Good. and outlandish. Good. Once, yes. twice, 
per day. That's my, that's my regimen. That's good. Um, <clears throat> so I used to be involved in, uh, in, in, in an administrative capacity in the world of, of, of theoretical physics. And theoretical physics is a discipline which uh, happens to be highly male-dominated, right. as it happens. And if one looks at, and I am not a psychologist, nor do I pretend right. to be a psychologist, but if one looks at the characteristic profiles mm -hmm. of individuals who practice this field, mm -hmm. on average, statistically, if one, one looks at that, one finds uh, a non, not insignificant overlap between many of the characteristics that you have been describing, certainly closer right. to the Asperger side of things. Yeah. You find people who are highly intelligent, right. but highly, uh, uh, and highly analytical, but oriented towards very, very specific right. tasks and a high repetitive nature. They're, they're very yeah. gifted at what they're doing. They're not terribly interested in anything yeah. outside of their tiny, right. tiny bandwidth and so forth. Um, and, and so when I read this about the, the, yeah. the preponderance of male cases right. over female cases, I thought, isn't that interesting? And yeah. isn't that suggestive, perhaps, of something? To me, there is, and, and again, I haven't done any studies, but it would be criminally unscientific to just ignore that and say, oh, no, oh, yes, that's absolutely. actually not the way the world is. That's, yeah. You're just saying uh, that uh, because uh, you, I don't know, hate men or hate physicists or hate something. I know. Um, but that's, that's just, in, in my view, that's just wrong. That, that's, that's, that's a, yeah. There's a compelling argument to at least investigate something to a, to a greater degree. Absolutely. I completely area. agree. And there are, of course, uh, uh, labs all, all over the world that are really starting from that point and, and try and, and make some sense. And that's, that's being, you know, actively researched. There could right. be different, different uh, reasons, like in, in the chromosomes or in hormones or sure. in level of testosterone prenatally. Anything like that could, could give uh, some some causes um, that that led to these kinds of differences and that give you these interesting overlaps between types of personalities that choose to be theoretical physicists right. or mathematicians. Right. And uh, yeah, I, 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 do, I do agree that this is very provocative and very interesting. Um, I would say that these uh, physicists and mathematicians, you know, being, you know, detail-focused and very rigid and not interested in social company, probably could all do the intuitive mentalizing tasks if they were given them. And that is a, a, a bet. Uh, you know, I, I would think the experiment should be done. Well, it's an open question. I it's an it. open question. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, it's, it's not all there is to autism, okay? Sure. But it is certainly one, one particular thing which is actually a, such a bad thing that I don't think you can be a very successful experimental physicist unless you somehow oh, compensate oh, with... Oh, the experimentalists. Oh, they are, are the, okay. The, the theoretical physicists. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I think it would make it really difficult to succeed. Well, you, you, you could well be right. Let me, let, let me ask you, let me get back to something that I promised to get back to, uh, to, to conclude. I've taken much of your time, but it's been a very, very enjoyable <laughs> conversation. Again, I want to go back to the perspective of the... The anxious parent who has okay. an autistic child. Yes. Um, and here we are talking about uh, ways in which you can define autism. We've talked about neurological yes. uh, yeah. Yeah. studies. Yeah. Yeah. We've talked about experimental psychological studies. We've talked about theories that might explain it. We've talked. We've hesitated about being too sweeping in our generalizations right. and so forth. Yeah. Yeah. But I still have Johnny, who's autistic. Okay. And and I'm obviously. Uh, 
very worried. I'm looking for a cause. I'm convinced that the cause is not environmental. Okay. Uh, they may be you know, yeah. factors. Yeah, and so yeah, but yeah. primarily, I understand that it's a genetic disorder. It's a, it's a neurological right. developmental disorder. Um, what am I going to... Now, you've got all this knowledge from all these years of yes. having studied this. How can you help make his life and my life better? I think the theories see that, that psychologists like me have devised do give some way in so that, that, that there is some understanding. If you can use that knowledge and say, okay, this is what I can expect, this is what I cannot expect, you're already on the step to, to, to a, good, right. a, a, a good development. And there are many schemes available, for example, to teach um, autistic children social scripts, social situations where they can become familiar with what other people might think, what perspectives they might have that's different, and why they might have certain feelings and how the feelings are expressed. These programs seem to be really working. So they're learning by example? Is they're learning by uh, patient repetition, by, you know, in a typical way, uh, you would teach a child who is not naturally able to do maths for example, numbers, really seems to have some kind of neurological problem with doing numbers, you can still teach that child very patiently in different ways, something like, you know, algebra, right. geometry, all sorts of things. You can teach by analogy, you can teach analogy. Yes, you can, uh, uh, yes. you, you might have to accept, and I think I would accept, uh, tell parents that they have to accept certain limitations. So again, by analogy, with a child who hasn't got a number sense, which let's tell, you know, that there are bigger numbers and smaller numbers that you, you, you have to do something about subtracting and adding, can never really understand that, can still learn a lot by heart, by rote, right. to just get there anyway and right. use calculators just like we can use apps for all sorts of things now. We don't have to know anything. We well, <laughs> we, have to, we have to be able to judge whether an answer is correct or not. That can be taught. And there are lots of apps, in fact, avail available now, especially created by, um, in fact, the autistic community, by yeah, parents, by autistic people themselves. Right. They, they, they can rely on the ability to concentrate, to focus on something, to repeat, if necessary, a task that's quite difficult, as long as it's, of course, nicely, enjoyably done with some kind of reward at the end. But very often, you know, being able to play a computer game is a reward. Um, and indeed, you can find in many cases that the autistic child is not actually socially averse or aloof, but that they like social interest and social interaction in this very basic sense that we all have. They, they like to be the center of attention. Mm -hmm. um, but they may but not know how to, how they to do They need it, to have the techniques right. on how to not put off other people. Right. For example, uh, telling, telling a, a, an autistic child that they should look at other people, not necessarily in the eyes, that's another matter. They might really genuinely not like to do that, but to vaguely, you know, look in their direction and to smile. You can teach all of these things, um, which makes it easy, easier for the other person who doesn't know anything about autism to get a kind of conversation going. And they're often so eager to learn, to understand other people, they really will work very, very hard. So these programs are available, techniques are available. There are also techniques that 
um, are based on on learning psychology in in which has had has got quite a good scientific basis, good evidence on how to uh, control um, difficult behavior, how to make um, certain things easier, uh, even how to um, improve language, speech, how to do that. So many different problems have all their own solution, and of course some are more important than others. Mm. But um, on the whole, I, I feel really very, very optimistic as looking at the kinds of um, efforts that are available, the kind of programs. And the best thing of all, actually, is that there is a, a very active community and that networks very well, so that parents can say, that worked for my child, my child is like this, why you can you, find out, you, you can right, find right. out. And right. um, and that has been um, extremely good, extremely beneficial. Right. And um, I, I hope that that will continue. Of course, there is a danger of the, the charlatans that will be sure. preying on that community. So as long as one really is extra, extra paranoid about that, extra suspicious, I think it's really good to have that mutual help, mutual understanding not to strive and saying I'm not going to rest until my child is completely indistinguishable from any other child. That would not be the aim of the exercise, but, uh, you know, n nurturing the strengths that are there right. and taking account of the weaknesses just in a way that you would with any child. With any child. And, and, and I think, again, the, the, what, what struck me is that this is a developmental disorder, and of course there are limits uh, depending on the child, depending on the circumstance. But this notion that just because one has a developmental disorder does not mean that one can't continue to learn, that one can't continue oh, to improve. Oh, and, it's and they, they learn all the time. I mean, I, the, the kind of willingness to learn and ability to learn that I've seen in, for, in these famous cases like Temple Grandin, who is a, a really advocate about autism. She really is autistic and she is such a personality and a celebrity. She says she learns all the time, even she's now 60, she's still learning and she's still impressing you with, with new skills that she has. Well, I've certainly learned an enormous amount and I've had a wonderful time talking oh. to you. Thank you very much. Thank you for your interest. I hope you enjoyed this reformatted podcast. As mentioned at the outset, this conversation is also available both as an individual ebook and as part of the ebook and paperback Conversations About Psychology, Volume 2, along with separate discussions with Ellen Bialystok, Victor Ferreira, Greg Hickok, and Martin Monti. Those interested in more information about Ideas Roadshow are directed to ideasroadshow.com. For those who are curious about me and other projects I'm involved in, are recommended to visit howardburton.com. Thanks very much for listening, and I hope you'll tune into another Ideas Roadshow podcast on the New Books Network soon. We release a new one each Wednesday.